Well, good morning, everybody. I am so excited to be here with you this morning. I'm really excited to take you into the book of Ephesians for our new journey and a new book of the Bible this morning. Uh, it's interesting. When Juan came in this morning, he said, Scott, I'm a little bit nervous. He said, normally you take about 10, 12 verses at a whack. And he said, this morning you're only taking three. We're never going to get through the book of Ephesians. But I just want you to know there is so much good stuff we're just going to take our time and we're going to advance. We're going to advance at whatever rate God would guide us, but we're in no big hurry because you're going to gain so much from our study in the book of Ephesians. I'm glad that you're here this morning to get started. But for any of you who haven't been here with us, for the last two years we've been studying the book of John. We've been working through the gospel that we said was the book about believing. And John in his gospel had presented us with many compelling proofs that Jesus was indeed, Jesus was in fact the Christ, the Son of God. And it was John's design, it was John's purpose that after he had presented us with all of this testimony, that we would believe and that based on that belief we may have life. That was John's purpose. And as we neared the end of the book of John, it seemed very logical to me to move into the book of Ephesians from the book of John. And that's because in the book of John, we're led to believe that Jesus is the Christ of the Son of God. And when we have believed that truth as it was presented to us, in the book of John, we are then joined together with the Lord and the most amazing thing happens. I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to show you what that is in verse 17. This is what Paul wrote. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So listen, friends, the moment that you believe, the Holy Spirit comes and he takes up residence inside of you and you then become one in spirit with Jesus Christ. And at that point, you are now in Christ. And that is a key phrase that we're going to remember as we go through the book of Ephesians, in Christ, because that is the thing that drives this entire book of Ephesians. You have been joined together with him through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, even though you may not feel any different physically, even though you may not feel like anything has really changed, spiritually, there is a transformation that takes place, and now you are all in Christ because you have believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And now you're in Christ. You are in Christ. And in the book of Ephesians, you're going to find out what it means then for you to be in Christ. You're going to understand what that means. Now that the Spirit lives in you and you are in Christ, I want you to know that things are different for you. It's a whole different life for you now. Things are very different now that the Spirit lives in you. And as the Spirit dwells in you, there are some things that He does. And one of those we find in Romans chapter 8, and it says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And listen closely. If children, then heirs. We are heirs of God and we are fellow heirs or co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So when you are in Christ, you are children of God and you share with Jesus Christ all that the Father has given Him. Did you hear that? Is that amazing to you? Because you have believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, you are now in Christ, and because you are in Christ, you inherit whatever Jesus Christ inherits. Think about that. Because you are in Christ, what He has, you have. 
Because you are in Christ, whatever is His is yours in Christ. And that's why it's so important for us to move into this book from the book of John. We have to go into the book of Ephesians. Because once you've believed that Jesus is the Christ, and once you have believed that He is the Son of God, you have life in Christ. And because you are in Christ, now you don't have to wait until you go to heaven to realize all of the great spiritual riches that are available to you in Christ. Do you see that? So I'm really excited to take you through this book. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I want you to look at verse 9 here. And this is what Paul says. As it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. All of this, all of these things, my friends, are now available to you right now because you are where? In Christ. Because you are in Christ. More than the heart of man can ever begin to imagine is available to you right now because you are in Christ. Not because of anything that you've done. Not because you've done some good works. Not because you've said some nice things or prayed a certain prayer. But it's because you are in Christ. Nothing you have in Christ is because of you. You need to know that. There is nothing that you have done that has provided for you the things that are available in Christ. It's not because of you. It's because of Him. It's not you at all. It's because of Him. In fact, as I was studying chapter 1, and I was reading through chapter 1, I found in chapter 1 alone, all of the things that it tells us that you have in Christ are because of this. Listen closely. The things that you have in Christ are because of, in chapter 1, His will. They are because of His grace. They are because of His glory. They are because of His power. They are because of His love. They are because of His purpose. And they are because of His good pleasure. All that in chapter 1. Not one single time does it say you are in Christ because there is something that you have done to earn it. Not one single time does it say anything that you have accomplished on your own that has placed you in this position in Christ. Listen, friends, it is not you, it's Him. It is Him, it's all Christ, and everything is because of Him and to His glory. Ira and Ann Yates are a simple couple and they had big dreams. They decided that the life that they wanted was the ranch life, a simple life. They were going to be ranchers. And so it was their dream to own their own ranch. So they went to the bank one day and they persuaded the banker to loan them enough money to buy a large ranch in western Texas. So now Ira and Ann had realized their dreams and they were ranchers. But they soon found out that ranching was pretty hard work. They soon found out that ranching did not pay very well. They didn't make a lot of money working on this ranch. And before long, they were struggling to make their mortgage payments to the bank for the property that they had financed for their dream property. Soon, Ira and Ann were living in poverty. They were existing on government assistance. And they had very little else. They had very little money for food. They had little money for clothing. They had very little of anything. And they did their best to just scrape by by grazing the few sheep and a few cattle that they had on their ranch. But with so little, they were always in danger of losing their ranch. They were always in the face the threat of foreclosure. And they just scraped by. That's kind of the way life goes, isn't it? Sometimes that's just kind of the way things are. 
Sometimes we seem to just scrape by. Sometimes we just struggle to make ends meet, don't we? Sometimes it's a real battle. But I want you to know that I think that's also true of us spiritually. I believe that that is true of us spiritually as well. Sometimes it is just a lot of work to survive spiritually, isn't it? Sometimes it is a lot of work for us to just survive spiritually. I mean, do you ever, do any of you ever struggle spiritually? Do you ever feel like you are, spiritually speaking, just struggling to make ends meet? You are just struggling. You battle all of the struggles of the world. You battle all of the battles of your flesh. You face the loss of your jobs. You face the loss of your friends. You face the loss of your loved ones. You battle stress. You battle anxiety. You battle depression. You feel alone. And you struggle. It takes a toll on you spiritually. Or maybe you just are really busy. Maybe you have so much going on in your life that you never have a moment's peace. You're busy all of the time. You never have one moment's rest. You chase after work, you chase after kids' activities, and you just never have a moment to stop and to reflect on the things of God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever struggled like that? And these things take a toll on your spiritual life, don't they? They take a toll on your spiritual life. And so you decide, well, my spiritual life isn't producing the wealth that I think it should. And then you're even further depressed and and further down in the dumps than you were before. You struggle to find time in prayer. You struggle to find time to study the Word on your own. And if you're telling the truth, you probably don't do it much. Because you're battling. You're in a battle. You're struggling spiritually. And you just can't get there. Through the week, you struggle day in and day out with the exact same sin that has been haunting you for years and you feel like you just can't get free of it. You feel powerless to overcome it. And so listless, lifeless, you reluctantly drag yourself out of bed and find your way to church on Sunday morning. And you're hoping that somehow you're going to receive something that is going to bring you some level of spiritual nourishment. You come out thinking, hopefully, the the message this morning will bring some encouragement and that somewhere I'm going to find a little joy. And maybe you don't find what you're looking for and you leave complaining about the worship. You leave complaining maybe about the sermon or the people sitting next to you. And you just feel spiritually poor. Have you ever been there? Has anybody ever felt like that? Well, what Ira and Anne didn't know was costing them a great deal of joy. You see, 1,100 feet below their grazing sheep and below their grazing cattle was what geologists have called one of the richest oil fields in the United States. And one day in 1926, a representative from the Transcontinental Oil Company signed an agreement with Ira to build a wildcat well on his property. And they built this wildcat well, and they began to drill. And you know what they found? They found oil. And they found not only oil, they found a lot of oil. In fact, there was a government test that was run on that site 30 years after its discovery. And that government test found that Ira and Ann's oil well had the potential to crank out 125,000 barrels of oil a day. 
125,000 barrels of oil every day. If you're curious, today's oil price is somewhere between $65 and $70 a barrel. They had millions. They had millions. All of those years, Ira and Ann Yates walked around their branch in abject poverty. All of those years, they walked around without anything to their name, living on government handouts. All of those years, the potential for millions and millions of dollars every single day was right underneath of their feet. And finally, someone came to them and said, hey, There's oil down there. And you could be living a much better life. And you know what Ira and Ann did? They simply appropriated what they already owned. It was already there. It was already theirs. It already belonged to them. All they had to do was drill into it and appropriate it. Now, listen closely to me. For all of you who are here today, living in a malaise of spiritual poverty... For all of you who are here today who feel depressed and spiritually unable to make ends meet, I want you to understand that there is in Christ available to you right now at this very minute a resource of spiritual riches which are so great that your eye has not even seen such a thing. There are spiritual resources available to you right this very minute that you have available to you that your heart and your mind can't even begin to fathom. The resources that are available to you right this very minute are so great your ear has never heard of anything like it. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that's available to you right this very minute. And believers all across the world walk all over it every single day. They walk around it every single day, but they have absolutely no clue that it's there. They're absolutely clueless that it's there. They live in abject spiritual poverty, going from church to church to church, looking for some form of spiritual government assistance because they don't understand how much they truly already have where? In Christ. They already have it all. And my friends, as we come to the book of Ephesians, I want to just be that guy from the Transcontinental Oil Company for you. That's it. I want to be the guy that helps you to understand how much you really have in Christ. I want you to understand how much you truly have so that you can begin to realize the spiritual fortune that you have and then live like it. I want you to realize what you have, and then I want you to begin to realize it. I want to be the guy that helps you realize, and the guy who helps you appropriate the unbelievable wealth that you have at your fingertips. And I wonder, think about this, what would happen right here at Root River Church if we all began to realize the spiritual resource that is available to us in Christ? I wonder... If the people in our community saw every one of us living like we were tapped into that great resource, how would they be able to stay away? How would they not be forced and compelled to come and see what's going on? And I believe as we dig into the book of Ephesians, our church is going to be transformed as each one of you see the transformation in your own spiritual lives individually. I think that's what's going to happen. 
And it's my prayer that our time in this book of Ephesians will usher in for you a season of spiritual awakening, will usher in for you a season of spiritual renewal in each of your lives because you realize how much you have, where? In Christ. It's all available in Christ. So now I'm going to begin the book of Ephesians. I'm happy to do this with you. And as we do that, it's important that you understand that this book can be easily divided into two separate sections. The book is six chapters long, but as Juan said, don't expect us to get through it too quickly. It's six chapters long. The first section, which is three chapters long, the first three chapters, is going to help us to realize what we have in Christ. So that's what we're going to be doing for the first three chapters. And then in the second section of the book, which is chapters 4, 5, and 6, we're going to find out how that should impact our behavior. We're going to find out how that should change our lives and what that requires of us. So we'll have three chapters of theology based on what I call positional truth, and then we're going to have three chapters of practical instruction. Now, for any of you who may be new to the writings and the teaching of Paul, it's really important that you understand, for Paul, position always precedes practice. Take that one with you. Position always precedes practice. This is what I mean by that. It sounds just like this. Because this is your position in Christ, because of who you are, this is the first three chapters, this is how you ought to live. Did you hear that? Because this is who you are, this is how you ought to live. I can remember as a young guy, my mom always liked to remind me that I was the preacher's kid. And because you are the preacher's kid, you need to behave a little bit differently. You need to set a higher standard, she would tell me. And I see people elbowing my poor son out there. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is that your position always precedes your practice, doesn't it? Who you are determines what you do. So let's go now to the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first two verses right now. And it starts like this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Right here in this typical greeting that's commonly found in most of Paul's epistles or letters that he writes, there's something really important that I just want to pause in these first two verses and I want us to understand. Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians as he is sitting in a Roman prison in about 60, 62 AD, somewhere in there. He's sitting in a prison under the reign of Nero Caesar, who was one of the most brutal leaders the world has ever known. But Paul was a special guy. Paul was an unusual guy. He was born at about the same time as Jesus Christ in a town of Cilicia known as Tarsus. It was a great university town. It was a very well-cultured town. And he was born to a devout Jewish family who was very committed to raising him in the instruction of the Word of God. As a devout Jewish family, they were very careful to make sure that he had the very best education in the Word of God. So Paul spoke Greek, he spoke Latin, and he spoke Aramaic, and he was actually even a Roman citizen, if you can imagine that. His family at one point sent him to Jerusalem at a very young age so that he could study under the instruction of Gamaliel, who was one of history's greatest Jewish rabbis. He was very, very well trained in scripture. He was very well trained in philosophy. He even became good friends with someone known as Seneca, who was the great writer and stoic philosopher of that day. Paul was an absolutely brilliant man, and he was extremely driven. He was excellent at absolutely everything he did. 
Paul was good at everything that he set his hand to. In fact, he was so good that when he was in Jerusalem, he advanced far beyond all of the, all of his peers and of all of the people of his own age. And he had risen to a place of leadership. He had risen to a place of respect. And he had risen to a place where he had a few dollars. He was a very wealthy man. Now, here he is, after all of that, somewhere between the years of 60 and 62 AD, sitting in a prison in Rome without a penny to his name. After all of that, here he is sitting in a prison without anything at all. In fact, he said that he had been in prison often, and he had been beaten more times than even he himself could count. He nearly died on several occasions. And if you take a look at 2 Corinthians, Paul recounts some of his struggles, and this is what he says. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. So he had 39 lashes five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I spent adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from... You see that he's had a rough life. Do you see this? Danger from the false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, I'm often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all of these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Here is Paul, who's had a pretty crummy life. Things are pretty crummy for this guy, and now here he is again, he's sitting in a prison without anything but a parchment. That's all he's got. So I want to ask you, why would this man who had so much promise, why would this man who had so much going for him walk away from all of the good things that he once had to face this kind of hardship? I mean, who needs that? Seriously. Who needs that? Why would anyone in their right mind leave such wealth? Why would anyone in their right mind leave such privilege, vocational advancement, and favor to be beaten, stoned, left for dead, imprisoned, destitute, and hungry? Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody in their right mind do that? Well, from a human standpoint, nobody would, would they? But you see, it was not Paul's will that he become an apostle. It was not Paul's will that he be beaten and destitute and hungry. As we saw in Ephesians 1.1, this is what he said. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, how? By the will of God. He had become an apostle by the will of God. I mean, what a fool. What a fool to walk away from everything and to take that kind of abuse so that he could preach the gospel message. But that was not Paul's view of it. He didn't think himself a fool for that. He said, it is a requirement of me to preach. I have no choice. I have to preach. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I'll be accursed. The discomfort and the mistreatment were absolutely nothing to Paul. You see, it was the will of God for him to preach the gospel and he would be accursed. Paul would be damned were he not to preach the gospel. He was going to preach the gospel no matter what the cost. May I suggest to you that the church would be in a much better place if it were filled with preachers and teachers who took Paul's approach to ministry. May I suggest to you The church would be in a much better place if it were filled with preachers who could say, it is not my education, it is not my ordination, 
It is not because I'm an attractive guy. It's not because I speak beautifully that qualifies me to preach the Word of God. It's not because I can draw a big crowd that qualifies me to preach the Word of God. But I preach the Word of God because it is the divine, sovereign will of the Almighty God. So whether I am imprisoned, whether I am beaten, whether I am broke, whether I am hungry, it is a requirement for me to preach the Word of God. I am accursed. I am damned if I don't preach the Word of God. Neither whips, nor rods, nor stonings, nor poverty will stop me from preaching. I preach because it's the will of God. And I think the church would be in a much better place if it had more people who could make that declaration. I fear that there are too many people in the world today who preach not because it's the will of God, but they preach because it's their own will. They preach because they seek opportunity. They seek notoriety. They seek admiration. They seek respect. They preach because they seek elevation. They preach because they seek wealth. And because they're not preaching simply because it's the will of God for their lives, at the very first sign of trouble, they pack up and they run away. And I wonder how many of our preachers and teachers today would have the fortitude of the Apostle Paul to walk away from wealth and to walk away from privilege so that they could face beatings and starvation, so that they could face imprisonment because it was the will of God for them to do that. I wonder how many of our preachers today would do that. Or I wonder, are they in it just for what they can get out of it? And can I just tell you something? I often ask myself the same thing. Why am I doing this? Am I only doing it because it is the will of God for my life? Or am I doing it for some other reason? And I would encourage you to ask yourself that question. Why am I doing this? And I want you to know that if you can't say because it's the will of God for my life, if you can't say, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, then don't do it. Go find a job. Go find another job. There's much more that you could be doing. There's much more that you could be doing. But if it is the will of God for your life to preach the gospel, then woe unto you if you're not out there doing it. So much more that we could say in verse 2 this morning, but I'm going to move on. I'm going to take you to verse 3. And when we get to verse 3, you're going to see Paul's heart just overflowing with love and praise for the Father. And it bursts into this extended period of of praise that will carry us for the next 12 verses. In fact, there's no period in the original Greek for the next 14 verses. But we're only going to look at verse 3 this morning. And there are a few things that I want us to see, so let's go to verse 3. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, as you know, at Root River Church, we have three core values. How many of you can say those with me? Word, worship, community. We have three core values. The second of our three core values is worship. Now, from the very beginning of time, from the very beginning of man's relationship to God, man has attempted to worship God. He has attempted to declare the goodness of God. But because He is God, because He is good, He is inherently worthy and He is inherently deserving of our praise. He is inherently deserving of our worship. And Paul begins verse 3 by saying this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word that is translated blessed here is the word oulogitos. It's oulogitos. And it is a compound verb, which it comes from the word eu, which means good, and logos, which means word. Now, let's put this together. 
eulogos. So it is a good word. And that's where we get our word eulogy. You've heard it before. What do you do when you have, when you share a eulogy? Well, what you do is you say good words or you say good things about a loved one who's deceased, right? So that's what it is to bless God. It's to say good things. And so all through history, man has declared the goodness. He has declared the greatness of God. And that's what it means to praise God, isn't it? It's to say good things about God. We say good words. We say good things about him. And that's why, my friends, the words of our worship songs are so important to us. That's why we must make sure that the words make sense and that the words are what they should be because they must be directed toward God and they must say good things about him, not us. Otherwise, they're not blessing God. It's not worship. It's not praise. Listen, for people who are in Christ, there is nothing more appropriate for you to do than to bless God. Do you know why that is? Why do you think that is? Take a look at verse 3 again. Because He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. This is really interesting to me. We bless God or we say good things about God because He has blessed us. James tells us in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from where? It's from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Listen, because God is good, it is his nature to bless us with every good thing. Stay with me. Every good thing. Think about that for just one moment. Every good thing is a gift to you from the Father. Often, people can quickly catalog and itemize all of the bad things in their life. They have no problems telling you all of the things that are going wrong and all of the things that are working against them. But those are not the important things. Those are not the things that really matter. I wonder how often all of you have paused to consider all of the good things that he's done. Have you ever stopped to do that? We quickly identify the bad things, but have you ever stopped to catalog the good things? Those are the things that are important. The things that come from God. Can I share a couple with you? The feeling that you get when your little kid climbs up in your lap and gives you a hug around the neck, that's a good thing, isn't it? I mean, that's a good feeling. Those of you who will soon have babies, that feeling you get, that intimacy that you get when you feel the little baby kicking in there and moving around, that's a good thing, isn't it? That's from God. That's a blessing. That is a good thing. Can I tell you that a loving relationship, a loving marriage relationship with a spouse who's passionately committed to serving God, that's a good thing. When you have a relationship with someone who loves the Lord and it's a loving and genuine and caring marriage relationship, that's a good thing. That's from God. That's a blessing. Those are good things. It's a gift from God. But you know there are other things, and I wonder if you stop to think about these. Do you know that God didn't have to give you color vision? Did you know that? He didn't have to do that. He could have made your vision black and white. He didn't have to allow you to to see all of the beautiful fall colors up in Door County. That's a good thing. It's a gift from God. He gave that to you. Did you know that He didn't have to give you taste buds? Think about that. He didn't have to give you taste buds so that you could taste the difference between things that were sweet and things that were salty and things that are bitter and things that are sour. He didn't have to do that. He could have just made everything taste like oatmeal. But because God is good, because He loves you, He gave you the joy of distinguishing the great flavor of chocolate cake over the horrible taste of spinach and broccoli. I mean, it's something that He's given you. It's a good thing. Here's one of my favorites. 
Here's a good thing in my life. I love the simple pleasure I get from my wife's dog. She and I have a relationship that's really special to me, and it's a good thing. I get a kick out of that dumb little dog. (laughs) How many of you have ever had pets that made you happy? It's a good thing, isn't it? God didn't have to allow you to have a relationship with a pet. He didn't have to allow you to have a relationship with a dog or a cat or to have those kinds of things in your life that could bring you such joy. But do you know why He did it? Because it's a good thing. He's blessing you with the good things. So even the love that you have for your pets is a blessing that comes from God. It's a good thing. Every good thing, guys, every good thing comes from the Father. Every good thing that you have. And the truth is that there are some pretty terrible things that happen in the world too, aren't there? I know that there are. I mean, death and illness and sadness. But I want you to know that none of those came from God. Every good thing came from God. Those are all the result of the decay of sin and rebellion in your life. And when you sinned, even one small little sin for the very first time, you ushered all of the decay of sin in. You ushered in death and and sin and sorrow. But every good thing comes from God. Everything. But there's much more to it than that. Not only has He blessed you with every good and perfect gift, not only has He given you all the simple little earthly things that make your life so much better, all the things that you take for granted, but take a look at verse 3 again. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see, that's the real point. It's not the things that you have on earth that are so important, although those are nice, those are good things. But it is this truth. We need to be careful not to get hung up on the earthly things. Let's not get hung up on the earthly good things. Don't let them be a distraction to you. They're nothing compared to the spiritual blessings that you have in the heavenly places. And the word spiritual here in the Greek is pneumatikos. And it is always used, listen, it is always used to refer to the things that are characterized by the Holy Spirit. You understand? So we're talking about gifts that have their origin in the Holy Spirit. And verse 3 says, He has blessed us. He has blessed us with those things. Now, In the Greek, the word blessed is in the case that we would call the aorist tense. And so what that means to us is that it is an action which has begun and it is an action that has also found its completion. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what he's saying is, in this case, that it has already been initiated. It has already been completed. The message is that you are in Christ and because you are in Christ, God has already completed the action of blessing you with every single spiritual blessing which is characterized by the Holy Spirit pertains to the Holy Spirit. You already have absolutely everything that pertains to the Holy Spirit. You got it all. You already have it all. You're just like Anne and Ira Yates. You're walking around all over it. The wealth is there. You just need to tap into it. You need to spend it. You already have the blessing of all things that pertain to the Holy Spirit. There is nothing more that you can need. There's nothing more that He can give to you. And people don't understand that truth. And that's why people always pray for the wrong things, don't they? What does Romans 8.26 say? It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what? How to pray as we should. We don't know what to even pray for. We don't even know how we should pray. Let me illustrate that for you. Have you ever heard somebody pray, Oh God, what we need is love. Give us more love. You ever heard that? Oh God, give, give this world love. Or oh God, we need more joy in this world. Bring joy to this world. Oh God, give us peace. But what does Galatians tell us about that? What does Galatians say? 
It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You've already got all of those things. Stop asking for them. You don't need to ask for them. They're the fruit of the Spirit. They're things that you already have. They're characterized or they pertain to the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians says, He has already completed the task of giving those things to you. You already have them. It's a done deal. The problem is that you're walking around all over them and you don't know how to drill into them. You don't know how to tap into them and you don't know how to spend them. That's the problem. They're already there. You see, the money is in your checking account. All you have to do is sign the check and take it to the bank and spend it. It's already there. Isn't it interesting to note here that when God blesses, He pours out every good and perfect thing, doesn't He? He pours out every good and perfect thing, and when you and I bless, all we can do is say. Have you noticed that? Did you notice that here? All that you and I can do is say. When He blesses, He gives. When you and I bless, we say. He gives you every good and perfect thing. And in turn, what do you do? You bless Him and you say, Wow, God, you are really good. That's it. That's how it works. It's that simple. He gives you every good thing and you turn around and you say, Wow, God, blessed are you. You're amazing. That's amazing. You are so good. That's your role in the whole thing. That's all you have to do is spend it and then turn to God because you are in Christ and say, wow, that's amazing. God, you are amazing. Who is like our God? There's nobody like our God. He has already blessed us. He has already given you everything. Just tap into it, spend it, and then turn around and say good things about him for it. That's worship, right? That's praise. That's all you're doing. You turn around and you say good things about him for it. You say, wow, God, that's amazing. Nobody like you. Wow, God, you are so incredible. Wow, God, you are so gracious. You are so generous. It is so good for you to give me everything that I have in Jesus Christ. It is so good that you have given me joy that's unspeakable and I can't even express it. It is so good that if you have given me the peace of Jesus Christ, it is so good for you to do all those things. Bless him. Worship him. Thank him. Tell him how great he is. I want you to know there's no additional blessing. You've got it all. According to Ephesians, you've already got it. It's all yours. You just need to drill down and start spending it, man. It's there. So as we close this morning, I want to give you a very simple and practical step to begin doing that. Can we do that this morning? It's very practical. And I truly believe in my heart that this could be life-changing for you if you'll allow it to be. May I just challenge you this week, every single one of you that is in this room this morning, could I just challenge you to take some time and just count your blessings? Catalog the good and perfect things that He's given you. It may sound foolish. It may sound a little bit childish. But could I challenge you to do that? Get your eyes off of the bad things. Stop looking at the bad things. Focus on the good things. All of the good and perfect things. And right there in the middle of all of the bad stuff that you're dealing with every single day, Right there in the middle of all of the busyness, all of the crummy stuff that you're dealing with, right there in the middle of all of that, stop and just write down a couple of the good things. Thanks God for clean water. Thanks God for fresh air. Thanks God for my wife's little dog. All of these things. Make a list of all of the good things that He's given you. And then, listen, that's only part of the job. The rest of the job... It's for you to turn around and bless Him for it. Say good things about Him for it. 
Say good things to Him for what He has done for you. Say good things to Him for the blessings. Every good thing that He's given you. Listen, friends. Every single good thing that He's given to you is a reason for you to turn around and bless Him and praise Him and worship Him wherever you are. Every good thing. And then could I ask just one last thing of you? If you don't mind, would you mind just allowing me to bless God with you? I want to celebrate with you. I want to see all the good things that God has given you. I want to celebrate with you. So would you mind just taking a second and just fire off an email to me and say, Hey, Scott, guess what? Here's a good thing that I'm just so thankful for. And I'm going to bless God for this. I'm going to praise God. And if you don't mind, you don't have to send me the whole list. Just whatever you feel like sharing with me. Tell me the good things that He's done for you so that I can join you in worshiping Him and so that I can join you in blessing Him. And if you would do that, I'd just ask you to send it to my email address. It's very simple, scott at rootriverchurch.com. It's an easy one to remember. Send it there and let me celebrate with you. Could I do that? Would you be willing to do that? Father, I thank You. Father, You are good. There is no one like You. You're rich in love. You're rich in kindness toward us. And it's amazing that You have all ready completed the task and you have already given us every single good thing it is amazing that you allow us to share in the unbelievable inheritance of your son jesus christ it's amazing that you allow us to share in that inheritance just because we've believed and we're now in christ we love you god and we're thankful for all of the blessing you are amazing you're incredible who is like our god There is no one like our God, declaring the end from the very beginning, knowing everything that happens in between, pouring out the sunlight, pouring out the darkness so we can rest and sleep, giving us every good thing. 